Hi, this is Emily Gibson. And this is Caitlin McFarland. And we're the co-founders of ATX Television Festival. And you are listening to the TV Campfire. Hello. I'm excited about this one because this is our first release for the syndication project. Yes. Our foundation. I have been listening to some of our intros and sometimes we don't tell people early enough what we're introing. <laughs> so this week's release is called Storytellers on the Front Lines of Change, the Refugee and Asylum Seekers Crisis, and it is presented by Amnesty International. So I thought we maybe could talk a little bit at the beginning about what the syndication project is. The syndication project is ATX Festival's 501c3 nonprofit branch. And basically, we spent a lot of time a few years ago coming up with what we really wanted its mission to be and what we really felt the most passionate about in having this foundation part of the festival, which was important for us from the beginning to have. I mean, it's maybe not common knowledge, but it'd be easy to find that the festival started as a nonprofit and then switched over a few years in for various reasons, various business reasons. But we were able to keep the foundation arm and we really wanted it to focus because the festival wasn't necessarily focusing on charity work yeah. as one. Like it had the overall mission of education and entertainment and, and that arts, sort of thing. The and arts, arts and, and arts celebrating the arts. But we really wanted to have a branch of the festival that really focused on the give back part, the standing for something that we would be able to do a little bit more community work with. And we had this branch and we were took us a while to come up with a name and figure out the mission but really what we came down to and the thing that we believed a lot in was advocacy through storytelling and that's it in a nutshell of really looking at we talk a lot about how much we believe in the power of television and what that means and that doesn't mean everything should have this heavy educational in your face type mission to it but that there are things that can be told on TV that really are very impactful and should be looked at in a, through a serious lens, this being one of those topics when you talk about refugee and asylum seekers and how they've been portrayed in the media for many, many years. And that's starting to take a turn, fortunately. Unfortunately, it's because some not so great things have been happening in our country that have made people really push for something better. And so we wanted a platform for people in entertainment to really to support and help them telling these better stories. Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add to it is that I mean, the syndication project's got a very lofty mission and is hoping to do a lot more in the future, both outside of the festival and inside the festival. But last year, we launched basically a track of panels of the festival that partners these stories, issues that need to be told about characters and things like that. So like the idea with an organization like Amnesty International and then putting on writers or people from that organization and talking about either how they work together, what kind of stories have been portrayed in the past, was that good or bad, how that storytelling can make a difference. Sometimes that's even partnering with other organizations to, you know, what do you do after the fact of seeing this? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not even that much in your face. And it is just more education about what it's like to be an asylum seeker or a refugee or a dreamer and all of the things it touches that it sort of conjures up ideas in the media. But then what does that look like in a storytelling kind of fashion, which I thought was really cool. In this panel, we did have Elizabeth Finch, who was a co-executive producer of Grey's Anatomy, Alexander Wu, who's a co-creator and showrunner and producer of The Terror, and Raphael Augustine, who's a writer on Jane the Virgin, and Mike Royce, who's creator, writer, EP on One Day at a Time. All of those shows span serious drama to comedy. But I was even thinking while you were talking in a way that they weren't still around to be a part of this panel, but the Into the Dark episode that we screened mm -hmm. on Thursday, which is the Blumhouse Hulu show, was the July episode, which that holiday was about independence. And it was a lot about the border and refugee and asylum and all of those things. And so it's nice to be able to take this and put it in different ways. We always say when you come to the festival, you may miss a panel. But the idea is that there's themes and people that are talking about their shows and the things they're most passionate about in more than one place. And so after doing it in 2018, we partnered with some of the same organizations. You'll be hearing ones from the Television Academy and... Do we do ACLU the year before? Yep. We've done ACLU two years. Yeah. So it'll be coming again. But then this was our first year working with Amnesty International and there'll be some others. So these have become some of the most powerful and important panels that we're doing without it being preachy in a lot of ways. Yeah. These are really places where we wanted to set the stage for discussions that 
if they're not being had other places, they're not being had enough other places, but really letting these showrunners not only talk to audiences, but also talk to each other about what struggles they're going through, how they're incorporating these stories, things that are working for them, things that are not working, and then also actually connecting them with the organization. So this was moderated by Ashley Houghton from Amnesty International and being able to put them in contact with the organization that one has is a huge resource to all these storylines and is there to help make sure that people are telling true stories. And I know I complain about the word authentic, but <laughs> authentic stories that you only complain about it because it's misused it's and overused, and overused, but it is a not true because word. it's not real. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that so many of these characters are one just not portrayed at all, but then also just portrayed incorrectly that you don't realize these are everyday people that just grew up in a different set of circumstances mm -hmm. and are looking for the same things that we're all looking for. And to humanize that type of story is really the only thing that these showrunners are trying to do. Yeah, They're trying to humanize and bring out that connection. They're not trying to necessarily be political on this is right, this is wrong. It's mm -hmm. more just look at this person as a human. Don't look at this person as this category of type of thing that may be a little vilified right now. And I think over that, it's like also like everything else, specificity is universal. This is one person's story. This isn't all asylum seekers. This isn't all refugees. It's how do you tell a very specific story that is authentic and real and everything else that helps shine a light on something, but by no means says that that's everyone. I also want to say it's also a very fun conversation, like hearing these people, some of whom knew each other before, some don't, but like them talking about how different their shows are or whatever struggles they had to get this made and and the partnerships that helped get it done and things like that, that it is also like most of ours, hopefully meaningful, but also entertaining. I will also say it is one of two panels that I sat the entire way through. Oh, very cool. Yes. I didn't so sit there anymore. that oh, also feels very cool that this is one. Fortunately, whenever it was on Saturday afternoon, I got to go over and intro it and talk to the panelists a little bit before they went on. So very excited to meet all of them. And then, or some of them we already knew, Mike Royce, whom we love Adore. so much. And then intro it. And then because of the time of day, I had a little bit of time before I had to be somewhere else. So I actually got to sit and watch the entire thing, which, I mean, I love these panels and I love releasing them on the podcast. There is something magical about being in the room mm -hmm. as these conversations are being had and being able to see how the audience members are reacting to it, being able to see them ask their questions. I was going to say the Q&A usually reveals the itself Q &As that way. The Q&As are so cool because it is such a conversation between the audience and the panelists. Like mm -hmm. it's one conversation. It doesn't feel like audience asks a question, panelist answers it. Audience yeah. asks a question. There's back and forth and discussion mm -hmm. and you can tell people have something to say about what they've gone through too and the panelists want to hear it too. I mean, who knows? It may end up in the next TV show they're writing. Right, you never right. know. But. Well, and the thing about it is, I mean, I like to say that 98% of our questions are not the, like, silly, like, can I have a picture? Would you read this? But these panels don't really open themselves up for sure to those types of right. conversations or those kinds of questions. You get questions more that are personal and then asking a question about plans or, you know, how they picked this way. Because if you're going to ask a question in these panels, you're either very curious or you have something very personal attached to it, which is cool to then hear. Yeah. That, like, oh, that made a difference. Like, Usually it's about representation, like finally seeing this character mm -hmm. made me feel like I wasn't alone, yeah. which is the ultimate power of television, in my opinion, is the representation of it. And seeing yourself on TV is very powerful. And it's also interesting seeing yourself on TV in a way that looks very different from you physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think I feel good, like, for you guys to take a listen to Storytellers on the Front Lines of Change, The Refugee and Asylum Seeker Crisis, presented by Amnesty International. Thank you so much. Um, perfect. Thank you. Uh, normally, I'd stand for opening remarks. Do you guys mind if I sit? Okay. I have, like, one goal for this conference, and it is not to uh, have my water break on stage. Um, so uh, I really appreciate everyone who's here today, and it's because this is a vitally important issue. So when we're talking about refugees and asylum seekers, we're talking about a population that already has front page coverage, right? But it tends to be within the frame of what it means to be a villain in the narrative or a victim in the narrative. Very rarely is it a multifaceted human being story. And, uh, and we know that this has a deep and meaningful impact on the way that people approach the issue. So at Amnesty, 
we share cases of individuals who are at risk as a way to both affect their lives so that people take action in response to that, but also as a way to, uh, to amplify the story. I know that if I share the story of one person um, that's uh, uh, going to create an, a certain amount of empathy in the audience, but if I share the same story of two people, the empathy actually drops by half. So we find that it's really important to share individual stories. And at the same time, most refugees and asylum seekers can't share their stories right now. So it's, it's a weird space where Hollywood and, and uh, television in particular has been a more impactful uh, and more authentic storyteller than the people who are actually on the ground. And when we look past to, to previous stories like the Sound of Music and Casablanca, uh, stories of refugees in the United States. Uh, they're powerful not because they're stories about refugees, they're just stories about human beings who have extraordinary circumstances. And so when we look today to things like Madam Secretary doing an episode on family separation and detention, or if we look to uh, even like District 9, where there are stories about the refugee and asylum narrative, uh, uh, you know, we, we we see the hunger for more of these stories to be shared. So I'm so profoundly thrilled uh, to have the, the panelists that we have today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read their bios briefly out loud. So uh, first we have Alex Wu, who is the, the co-creator and showrunner of The Terror Infamy on AMC. Did anyone go to the Terror panel? It was incredible, incredible. Alex, come on out. <laughs> Thanks. And then we also have Elizabeth Finch, who's a writer and co-executive producer of a small show no one's heard of called Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> it just wrapped its 15th season with another two-season pickup, which is huge. We also have Mike Royce, who's the co-creator and co-showrunner of One Day at a Time on Netflix, also famous for Everyone Loves Raymond, uh, Enlisted, Men of a Certain Age. And then finally, we have Raphael Augustin, who's a television writer for Jane the Virgin, and recently sold a pilot about the experience of an undocumented American community titled Illegal. And uh, uh, Raphael is also a dreamer, an Ecuadorian immigrant, and the founding executive director of Edward James Olmos's uh, Latino Film Institute Youth Cinema Project, which is huge. So... You're so far. <laughs> I, I do feel distant. Why don't I just join you guys here? This is, there we go. There you, go. you guys will still know who I am, right? Um, so uh, I feel like one of the things that I say often is that we live in socially and politically divided times. And it's become enough that I use it as like a verbal crutch. Someone asks me, like, how was your weekend? I'm like, well, we live in socially and politically divided times. Um, <laughs> but we do have a real empathy gap. So I, I was wondering, particularly for someone like Elizabeth, where you have to create empathetic characters and really bridge that empathy divide, how you know your, your writing might have shifted or or particularly to the longevity of a show like Grey's Anatomy, like what you've seen over time? Um, you know, I, we're dealing with life and death every day in every episode, so it, it really, you get to the quick right there. And it's so in terms of connecting with people at a certain point, someone on the worst day of their lives or having the worst surgery of their lives or something, somebody losing someone so tragically or just doing that, there's the opportunity very quickly to connect with someone when they're in a position where they're saying, I'm needing, I need help, and you're there. So it's, you know, it's pretty much built into the fabric of it uh, just by nature. And in terms of how it's evolved over the years, even in the last six years, it's always been a show that's pushed the envelope and it's always been a show that had, that dared to ask questions and have conversations and put people in front of the screen that were never there before in positions of power. And that continues and it just keeps growing. So it, it, it's not that it's changed so much as that it just continues to. Yeah. Well, and it's increasingly relevant, I feel like, with every episode. <laughs> yes. um, so Alex, I'd, I'd love for you to share a bit about one of the most empathetic and powerful moments I've seen uh, in, in television, and it's the, the AIDS burger monologue <laughs> from True Blood. I don't know, do, do, has any fans of True Blood in the audience? It's one of my, yeah. Um, could you describe both what, what the AIDS burger monologue is, but also what, what led to that conception and what made it, in your mind, a TV moment? Uh, sure, and Finchie could do it too, because for, for five years, we literally sat 
next to each other in the writer's room of, of, of True Blood. So it's nice, nice to reunite here, here on this couch. We never got to sit on a couch together. No, we always sat in chairs, chairs together. Uh, that, that monologue was a scene in the fifth episode of, of True Blood where we had, there was an openly gay character here in, in, in very, very rural Louisiana who uh, had uh, a, a, he's a, a short order cook in the bar and uh, these three uh, guys send back a burger uh, because they think it might have AIDS on it. And he comes back and he delivers a monologue and then he uh, beats the living hell out of them. So that, that scene, you know, uh, to me, I have to take, I take very little credit for it because I didn't conceive of the scene, Alan Ball did. I didn't execute the scene because the late Nelson Ellis did. So I just wrote some sheet music. Uh, but that scene was, was something that was already floating there in the early episodes. Uh, Alan had that idea of, of someone sending back a burger because it might have AIDS and, and Lafayette does something. And it's a uh, it's one of those rare times, really quite rare times as a writer when you think, oh, I feel, I know how to do that. So I <laughs> I asked for that episode because I wanted to write that scene, and it was ve- it, it came very quickly. So one of those rare times, you know, does it happen every so often, or do, does everything come easily? <laughs> it's pretty easy actually. Okay, great. All right, for me, not always. Not always, but occasionally, and it's amazing. It's a wonderful feeling when you just kind of know where know where it comes from. Um, and and to me, we were establishing that character who had not had much to say uh, when he said it was memorable, but he didn't have his own story for the first four episodes. And so this was the scene where we were establishing who he was, and he was someone who knew there were people all around him staring at him. But if they were ever to see him and to try to do something, he was going to push back. And so that was the impetus for him delivering that monologue uh, the way he did. And you know, the way I plugged into it is you could, you could replace those words with any... It, it could be any other group of people who are, uh, are um, being maligned. And, uh, and it was you know, once in the hands of Nelson, he made it magical. Well, and it's powerful because it's a story of, of empathy, but also like a power dynamic, right? Because this is someone who I feel like a lot of stories are about, you know, how awful a hate crime is and how victimized that person is. But his response is, is to just completely change the power dynamic. Right? And that's if we uh, get to talking about uh, the terror, uh, that, that's a really important thing that we try to uh, make part of our show as well. Um. Uh, Rafa, I would I would love to hear more about your experience being in the writers' room, and like I feel as if you've been making huge waves recently when it comes to not diversity but representation in those writers' rooms, and and coming out as someone who was undocumented. Um, could you share a bit about that experience, but also what the response to that has been, and why you decided to do that? Uh, to the Hollywood Reporter op-ed piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the Hollywood Reporter did a. Um, did a study that found that immigrants in real life commit less crime than immigrants on TV. They are more educated than immigrants on TV and are less incarcerated than immigrants on TV. I think my parents are a perfect example of that. My father was a pediatric surgeon who came to this country to work at a car wash. And my mother was an anesthesiologist who came here to work at Kmart. And ours are the stories that you really don't uh, see on TV. So when they did that study and they were looking for someone to kind of like speak on it, uh, they reached out to me because they knew about the pilot that I sold. Um, just so you know, because I'm like the least famous person up here. Um, when I was in high school, all right, when I was in high school, I was, um, I was the class president. I was the prom king. I was the top 10% of my class. Then I applied to go to college and discovered I was undocumented. That's crazy. <laughs> and it took me an entire lifetime to realize that that was the story I needed to tell. That, that's how people from marginalized communities and underrepresented communities um, get seen, right? By writing ourselves into existence. And I knew I wanted to tell that particular story, and I did. And that's the script that got me into Sundance. That's the script 
that I sold at CBS right now, and that's the script that got me on Jane the Virgin. So because of that story that I shared and because of the study, The Hollywood Reporter reached out, and I think everyone has been very receptive to it, not because it's the right thing to do. Uh, I think everyone is receptive to it because of the amount of money that Black Panther made and because of the amount of money that Crazy Rich Asians has make, made and Coco and shows like Atlanta and One Day at a Time. Like, it, they work, so let's invest in these stories. Um, and we can't forget that this is happening in a social and a political context, right? So it's one thing to come out with a show in, you know, 2010, right? And like the hopey, changey era. And then it's another to come out with one today. And so, Mike, if I remember correctly, One Day at a Time, uh, which was an incredible panel today, by the way, um, One Day at a Time, uh, you've, you started filming before Election Day, Right. And then you, your pilot was after Election Day. Is that right? We filmed the whole season before. We've, we wrapped about Labor Day 2016. So what was that like? Right? Like to... to... Is it our fault? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> like, you're entering a completely different dynamic though, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just, it's just that the show that we did was introduced to America in a completely different context than we were anticipating. It, it, it felt, it, I don't know what, I mean, I'm trying to think like what we were anticipating because we were all texting each other the night of the election going, you know, ha ha ha, isn't this, I can't, you know, this looks like, and then, you know, ha ha ha, changed to, ha ha very quickly. Um, we, we, I, like I'm trying to think what we even thought the show, the reception we thought the show we would get. We were much more concerned with much more mundane issues, like it's a multicam. Are people even going to pay attention to a multicam? People don't take them seriously anymore. You know, Gory and I were just like, we like it. <laughs> Hopefully, other people will like it too. You know, we're crying at the moments where we hope people are crying. And um, but politically speaking, it was much more important to us to put this family on television and sort of along the lines of what you're talking about create empathy only through this is a too big a word for this but normalization just look it's your neighbors oh they're latino you know like it, it, you shouldn't be thinking about it because look these people you know people of all different kinds live in america and it's just that these people aren't on television um that was that was what where we were at when once, once the election happened, you know, we had done a story where we said, we had talked about doing a show about uh, undocumented, you know, immigration in some sense, but, you know, the family's Cuban. It's a whole different issue. And I wish I could say, and I'm so smart because I know, you know, I'm learning all this, you know, I'm trying to become educated along the way. And we found a way in uh, because we were just going to own that part of the story and really shine a light on the fact that it's different for Cubans while setting up this friend of Elena's. And what I'm proud of in that episode is that she, we set her up earlier, Carmen is the name of the character, who's a goth and she's sarcastic and she just is a teenage friend of Elena's and then she's revealed, she's, she was born here but her parents are undocumented. And um, it to me is like, a, it's like, surprise, you know, this is just a person who you like and now you find out this thing about them, it should make, it's a person, you're just, you don't need to worry about the rest. And um, she, you know, she's a, she goes to Frozen on Ice because she likes to see the skaters fall. Like, that's her thing. <laughs> um, don't we all? <laughs> so it just took on such a magnified, you know, um, it had such a magnified impact because of the way the Trump administration was treating, you know, marginalized people of all kinds. Well, and, and actually, the, the news that's happening today feels very historic and it feels very rooted in our history. And so that actually brings me back to Terror Season 2, which is going to be about Japanese internment, right? And so, I, I, Alex, I'd love to hear you talk a bit more about, you know, what what either uh, led to the choice to move in that direction or if you, you found that that premise has increased relevance today? 
Okay, well, very, very quickly. The Terror is an anthology series on AMC, and the first season was about a, uh, a, a British expedition through, to find the Northwest Passage. Season two, and if you like that, season two has none of it. <laughs> none of the same cast, none of the same writers you liked, none of the same sets you liked. Damn it, Alex. Completely different. So we're starting from scratch. Um, it's it's a, an anthology series, and, and it, it's still an historic, uh, historically based story using uh, genre uh, against a genre backdrop. So we are telling the story of the internment using the vocabulary of Japanese kaidan and Japanese ghost stories and the Japanese horror movies that were sended from it. Um, and the idea for that was that we would use the terror you feel from watching your favorite scary movie. Um, you know, the hands trembling, the, you know, the, the, the shortness of breath, um, as an analog for the terror of the actual historical experience. And the internment is something that has not been represented very much on screen at all. And to me, going back to your point of, about empathy, this is what we do writing television, specifically television, is that uh, in the era of, of uh, serialized television, uh, the, when a show really works, you develop an empathy and a connection between the viewer and the characters. They feel real to you. They come into your house week after week and they tell you their deepest, darkest secrets and in between episodes you worry about them or you get excited for them or you get pissed off at them, whatever it is. And then you talk about them with your actual friends for seven days before the next episode as if they were real. And in some cases I would see my favorite TV characters more than I would see my actual friends. Right? So, so that empathy that's built is, you know, whether you're, for whatever reason you're using it, is when TV works well, that's what you can really do. So for the purposes of telling a story about the internment, this is what television can do really, really well, if we've done our jobs right, is using the horror vocabulary, we can really hopefully allow the viewers to enter the skin of the people who lived through the experience. So rather than going from a sort of 35,000 foot docudrama level, of which there are many wonderful docudramas, many wonderful histories that were written, uh, we're going at a very granular level, very, very personal, very, very subjective in the style of filmmaking and the, and the, and the style of storytelling so that you hopefully really feel what those people are going through um, and are living in their skin and developing a, a connection to them from week to week to week to week. Uh, and if we've you know, done our jobs right, we've gotten hopefully a viewership, people will watch, I hope, uh, to care about uh, something that happened 75 years ago and not feel at a safe remove from it. You know, we want to feel people are in it. You don't want to feel like, you know, well, that happened a long time ago. That was ancient history. Thank goodness immigrants have nothing to worry about these days. You know, you don't, you don't want that. And you want to feel like, oh my God. <laughs> this is, this is, you know, I, I, I can feel this and it doesn't take too many additional leaps of logic to get to where we are today. And, you know, if we have, I don't know, however many, a million, two million people come watch wanting a great scare and, I don't know, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 people suddenly care about the plight of the internment and the immigrant situation today, that might not seem like a lot of people. That could also swing an election. So, you know. Or call their members of Congress. <laughs> Go to amnestyusa.org for more information. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, I'd love to open this up. So, so Rava, you've, you've talked a lot about the importance of having people in the writer's room who have the experience, right? And, and I think that if we've learned anything from the ATX Festival, like every conversation seems to go to this place. Of you need to have that representation in the room. But then there are some stories like refugees and asylum seekers, right? Where they're just not in a position to share their stories most of the time. And they're certainly not television writers, right? Like they're not pursuing those careers for the most part. So I guess that my question is for all of you, um, how do you maintain that authenticity in a, in a, in a storyline where um, it might be difficult to, to get that, that, that important storyteller in the room? 
We do as much research as we possibly can um, in as many possible ways. As we, you know, we do it with the medicine. We do it with every kind of component. But if we, if there's not someone in the room who has lived that experience, we will go and find someone and we will go and find the best people we can and to have those conversations to ask difficult questions to ask organizations that are connected with it what's being told right now that's damaging what can we do differently how can we push this this in this direction how can we move the needle what are the world like what are the tropes that are out there that we're not aware of what's the scope and how can we do it differently and that's how we've approached any time we don't have someone in the room that's able to speak to the story that we want to tell. I, I also think that there's um, great organizations that support the work. Like we had a conversation with like Jane the Virgin Amnesty International early on in the season. Um, Define American, um, Color of Change, Storyline Partners. They do a fantastic job at connecting real life folk with the writers rooms. And the thing that I was pointing out in the op-ed piece was we have to be careful that we don't replace that from actually hiring people who have lived those experiences to be in the writer's room. Because a lot of times some TV shows make that mistake where they're like, we'll just focus on the consultant, but our writers are still our writers. And I think that's a little problem. Well, and it creates an added responsibility for those writers who are suddenly sharing someone else's story. And so I, I, that brings me to another, like for those who, who are not representative of the communities that, that they're often writing for, you know, what are the challenges that you face with your own story that, that suddenly you're bringing to the table? Or you know, what, what kind of responsibilities have you seen in, in those writers' rooms? I think Mike would like to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm sorry, I, I'm not quite sure your responsibilities. Sure. So, like, as as a um, uh, as a showrunner or as a content creator or as someone who's not connected to the Cuban community, like one of the things that I love about One Day at a Time is that there's actually kind of joy in the misunderstandings and that the characters don't always get each other and that there are those cultural moments right. of confusion. And I'm wondering how much of that is you bringing that. You know, to the table as a human being, but also how do you how do you write really compelling multi-dimensional characters yeah. with authenticity at the same time? Well, just in terms of our show, that's certainly representation in the writers' room, just plain and simple, um, because you know Gloria and I made sure it's it's tough to you got to bother the agents, and now we don't even have agents to bother, so you just got to bother everybody else. Um, <laughs> to send you people who don't look like me. <laughs> there's a lot of people, a lot of writers who look like me, and there's, they're just, you just, they're the default. You get an email with 30 of those of me, um, and you have to go, I need people who can speak to XYZ experience, this experience. You know, I mean, our, our, the story of the new One Day at a Time starts with me, white guy, Brent Miller, white guy, Norman Lear, legend, still a white guy. Um, <laughs> sitting in a room going, hey, we should do, I mean, them telling me we want to do One Day at a Time together, one day, a Latino reboot of One Day at a Time, and I'm like, it's not just us, right? Because that would be bad. And, of course, they had reached out to Goria, and they paired us up, and, um, and it turned into a great experience. But, you know, Goria was really apprehensive at first because there have been shows speaking to uh, the Latinx experience that were created by three white guys, you know, it's, and they haven't been great. So we, we even have, you know, parts of the story where we're, we're trying to speak as authentically as possible. Gloria's story was what we were keying off of. She brought her experience, you know, she's infusing that whole family with a lot of stuff from her, her life. At one point, Sony called and was like, well, I mean, this is early in the process. It, you know, would you consider making them a Mexican family? And, you know, we were like, well, Gloria's not Mexican, and I'm not Mexican, so no. And I understand where they were coming from, because literally there are more Mexican people to, to broadcast. They were thinking in terms of audience. Um, to their credit, they immediately said, oh, I'm fine, fine, you know. But these are the kinds of where authenticity kind of goes by the wayside in service of like, well, let's just try to, you know, whatever, you know, whatever becomes the thing. So we have lots, uh, we have uh, 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 people from lots of different um, 
uh, with lots of different Latinx uh, experiences in our writers' room, and they, you know, that's the beautiful thing is they sort of there's the same but different. There's a lot of differences, and then there's a lot of like, oh, my mom does that, my mom does that, my mom does that, and for that matter, then it extends to everybody else too. So we're able to really um, make the show relatable to everybody, but also coming from a place of that is actually something that happened. This is the culture that we're we're uh, depicting, you know, and not guessing at it. I'd love to hear more about how you do this for different genres as well. So I, I feel as if we've got like every genre played out here. <laughs> like you've got the, the drama and the, and the horror and then comedy drama and comedy. And, and when we're talking about really deep and intense issues, I feel as if every single one of your shows either have or are about to deal with some very intense topics. How do you deal with that intensity without making it um, either overwhelming uh, in its uh, sadness, or like there, there, um, there isn't uh, a light at the end of the tunnel for people to watch for. Go ahead. No, no, no. Too late. You went first. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Sorry. I know what I was going to say. Uh, I do know what I was going to say. Uh, one of the uh, questions we asked of one of the organizations we spoke to, which is Densho, which is one of the, you know, archives of, of the Japanese-American experience, we asked their, their lead archivist, like, is there anything that shows movies about the internment, what few there have been? Is there something that just really bugs you that they always get wrong? His answer was really surprising. He said, it's always too miserable. It's not nice enough. And and that, that was that was surprising to me. It was early early in the stages, and what he meant by that uh, was that it is not purely a story of misery. It's a story also of great resilience and resourcefulness. So you know, we we have an internment camp, and probably not a surprise. I'm not spoiling anything in our show, and uh, it becomes a character in our show. You you see this this really cold and and unfriendly place just dirt as far as the eye can see being turned into a real home by the japanese americans who are incarcerated there so it was important for us to tell a story not just of you know cuz plenty miserable but there was all it was also a story of great resilience and great strength as well so you know that's you know that's one thing that we wanted to to, to make sure we, we we told right again because there haven't been a lot. This is the first chance a lot of people will get to see of what life was like inside an internment camp in the United States. What I was going to say before Alex so rudely interrupted me <laughs> was uh, <Sorry. laughs> was uh, our showrunner Jenny Snyder Ehrman, the showrunner of Jane the Virgin. She once said something that stuck with me. She said that people can ignore issues, but people can't ignore other people. And that's why I think Jane the Virgin feels like we tackle so many like, issues, because it's always grounded in stories that, with these characters that we love, like you were saying earlier. Um, because I, I believe like people who are part of the movement, people who are woke, it's important that we don't lead with our politics, that we lead with our hearts. And that's how you make change, I believe. And do you think that also taps into how we avoid going into the saccharine? Because I feel, I feel as if there were a lot of efforts at social change in the 80s with the after-school special, right? And it was like, you know, if you really want to change hearts and minds, you really got to hit them over the head with it. And, and what we know now is that it just doesn't work. It, it isn't as effective. So I'm curious for, for all of you, you know, how do you create those moments without them feeling a little icky or, or, or like, a, a, like, like you're seeing the value first? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, first of all, great actors, <laughs> essential for our show, actors who can, you know, they have to be able to do comedy, but also really be great dramatic actors, which all of those people are just amazing. Um, and I feel like things are changing because there's so many shows. Like, now I go back and I look at some of those very special episodes. Some of them are over the top cheesy and that's just the way it goes. But some of them have incredible great stuff in it. And it's just that it, was, it stood out so much back then. But, you know, this now thing where you can, like people have said it before, every episode is a, is, a, is a special episode. You know, 
that's because I think you can get used to it. I mean, I just saw, I mean, on YouTube, that Fresh Prince thing where Will Smith, you know, and his dad, oh my God, <laughs> it, was, it was so, <laughs> see, I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting wound up just thinking about it. Um, it was so uh, powerful. And I didn't watch that show back then. Uh, and I was like, what the, f I missed this. How did I miss this? It was so great. Um, so I don't know, there's like more of that now, you know, in a way there's just more room for a lot of, tones can be subtly different without, without feeling like you're going way over here to do an important issue, you know? So um, I'm really curious, uh, do any of you have, and I'd love to maybe just go down the, go down the line, um, could you share a TV show that you think is moving the needle that isn't yours? Like, I want all of us to walk away from this with like, our lists of TV shows that we need to invest in. Um, so uh, maybe, maybe starting with Elizabeth, if, if, if there is a TV show that you think is really making a, a difference, um, and, what, and what TV show that might be. I know, it doesn't have to be one, right? Like, just go through the list and, and, and why. I just, uh, Killing Eve is the first thing that comes to mind, um, aside from it being just utterly fascinating, but who those women get to be in all of their, in all of their colors is just really fascinating to me. And that someone took that from a book of two guys and turned it into it and is, and let it, and let it just run. It's just, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal to me. Um, and I think that that opened up a possibility of another door, another possibility of what women could look like and what women could do and how their behaviors could be so twisted and unfavorable and messy and delicious and fantastic and I can't stop watching it. Maybe it's because I just met Tanya Sriracha for the first time yesterday, but Vita, you know, is a show that you just wouldn't otherwise see, you know, uh, uh, while we're on the topic of stars. It hasn't aired yet, but my, my good friend Katori Hall has a show called she really should push push for it to be called Pussy Valley because that's what she intended to be called. But it's like P dot 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 Valley, um, which is you know about strip clubs in the Mississippi Delta, which you know I think would very similarly would uh, um, will move the needle. Uh, I second Vida, and I will raise you. Um, Rami was is really good on Hulu. Um, Fleabag is pretty fantastic. And, and you know what? What is Game of Thrones? If, if not the story of Jon Snow, who saves a bunch of refugees, gets killed by his people for doing so. Spoilers. Gets oh, brought back to the, If you haven't seen it, you shouldn't be at this panel. Gets brought back from the dead, can't survive the politics of his nation, and then goes beyond the wall to start his own chapter of Amnesty International. Amazing. <laughs> um, well, I mean... I'm not gonna say it's a perfect show, but Handmaid's Tale certainly, I mean, now it's like a shorthand for America. So just the impact that, like, the fact that it came out at this time and is telling that story is, you know, I mean, protests are now filled with people cosplay, cosplaying Handmaid's Tale, which is a useful uh, political thing. Um, and then, I don't know, you know, there's, it's just, it's the, there's certain, Blackish is still, every time I watch, it's like, it, it just does a great, freaking job of almost always just some nugget of wisdom, you know, or some piece of culture that is educating me, but it's not, doesn't feel like a lesson or anything like that. Uh, the cast is great. The writing's just, just very consistently great and a, a, you know, a show that like should just, you know, like I said, it doesn't feel like you're doing homework or anything like that. It's just a great comedy. Also, my, my wife, who's a TV journalist, wouldn't forgive me if I didn't um, mention the late lamented Carmichael show. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and I think that one of the, the things that allows these narratives to be created is something that has also been talked a lot uh, about during, during the festival, which is uh, appealing to niche audiences. But do you ever worry about speaking to yourselves in those circumstances? Do you ever think about the person that you're disagreeing with or the person who, who might be completely different from you in your audience? Or do you just write or create for yourselves and, and hope that the audience is there? 
I, I, I mean, talking, you know, Gloria and I talk about that all the time. And, you know, it's, it is a balancing act because you never want to be like, we're doing something for the audience. You have to keep, stay true to your artistic vision. But of course, you also have the conversation, how is this impacting the audience? And especially when you're talking about issues or politics or um, representation, how, how you're showing a character, you know, it just all has to be a discussion. So, yeah, it's just always a balancing act, you know. Having a show that uh, has 15 million characters really helps. <laughs> is, is most of the time frustrating, but is also really great to uh, have as many points of view on something. So we can go at an issue, we can go at something and have the conversation and have people talk about it and from wildly different points of view. We have people from every kind of circle of the earth on that show. So I don't think we have to worry about polarizing anything. And, and I also feel like Chris, under Krista's leadership, it's, we just go the heck at it. And, are, like, and it makes us braver and bolder as a staff to just be like, this is something I'm passionate about. This is something that I feel like the world needs to know about or understand better in a different way. And I'd like to go at it and, she'll, you know, green light, keep going. Have you ever seen risks like that backfire? I'm just curious if anyone has any stories of if that hasn't worked out, but but you know, leaning into the leaning into the confrontation. I, I feel as if it's been pretty successful for most. All my shows are perfect, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'd, I'd love to hear more about. Uh, so today we're here talking certainly about refugees and asylum seekers, but I I, I want to hear whose voices you think are still missing. So as we're leaving here, you know, who, whose voice do you think should be part of the public conversation? Should we be having conversations about, but that story just isn't being shared yet, or it isn't being shared to the depth that it deserves? I mean, I'll, I, I feel like I, I'm not even sure how to say this, so that's how uneducated I am, which is why, you know, disabled representation certainly needs... <laughs> I mean, I know Speechless, and I'm part of the problem because I didn't really watch Speechless. I know it was a great show. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, we added a uh, character in a wheelchair on One Day at a Time as a recurring character. You know, she didn't really have a lot to do. Hopefully we'll continue and we can give her a little more to do. But, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean to me, that's, that's missing, and I certainly have been no help on that front, so it's in my head. Um, I'm going to second that as a person who lives with a disability. Uh, I, I am frustrated by the fact that it's the last thing on the list when people start talking about inclusivity, if it's on the list at all. I'm frustrated by the conversations that I've heard from other people where they're told on staff to keep that quiet if they can because then other people will start begin to doubt whether or not they can do their jobs. Um, or they're in studios where they uh, wouldn't necessarily be able to have the access to the rooms that they need to have. Um, and that's the pragmatics of writing it for TV, but there's an entire world out there of, of different ability that's both visible and invisible. 85% of disabilities are not visible. Um, and they're walking around in the world and making, uh, you know, making whatever accommodations they need to make for themselves in a world that doesn't understand what it takes for them to get out the door in the morning or what it takes for them to be able to afford the medicine that they're, that they're doing. And I think that across the board in terms of how we cast people and in terms of the stories that get told, um, disability and ability in any capacity is something very, very deeply missing. And, and to your point, specifically, like, invisible disabilities, right? Because yeah. I feel as if visible disabilities are, are, they're starting to emerge, but the other narratives really still aren't. Yeah, and it's, I realize, I, you know, I work on a medical show, so if you are seeing people, that it's usually a pro, like, it's a problem to solve. Um, so it becomes challenging, but it was a conversation I had a couple of days ago saying, like, why can't we have radiologists Walking down, wheeling, like walking down the hallway with a cane. Why can't we have any of that? Why can't we have a patient story where the person who is not sick have some kind of different ability? Why is that not part of the conversation? 
Um, and then we started to change that and started to have that in terms of who are who are a background artist and people like that. So, you know, the needle moves <laughs> a little bit, but not without a lot of a lot of pushing. That is really, I mean, not a solution, but a really important aspect that I'm trying to I try to keep in because you're de you want to just get rid of all your defaults. So if your default, yeah, we'll get a bunch of background, and then you're not. If you think about it for a second. Yes, just seeing some people on screen who you're not used to seeing will help, you know, even if it helps this much. And also then, you know, that starts people thinking about bigger things, hopefully. And, um, you know, that, that, those, it's also easily achievable. So it's at least a start. It's a tough question to answer because, because we, we do have Black Panther and crazy and rich Asians, but that doesn't mean that we're done telling black stories and Asian stories. Absolutely, I mean, yeah. there's 55 million Latinos in the U.S., and all we have is one day at a time, Vita and Jane the Virgin. So there's like 54.9 million stories left to tell. Um, I work in the immigration space, and the story that I haven't heard yet um, that I think is very important is undocumented black voices. And um, I'm waiting for the day for folks to tell their, their story. There's an assumption that all refugees are Muslim, and there's an assumption that all asylum seekers are Central American, and <laughs> that's clearly not true, right? But but when that becomes the front page news story, it, it becomes the default of, of the conversation. Um, so uh, I think we're gonna uh, break for, for questions in a in a couple of minutes, but but I'd, I'd like to leave you or to to leave here today with with any. Um, uh, Anything that you think that people should be uh, uh, noticing when they're watching TV shows. So if you're if you're sitting down, you're watching a TV show, and you're trying to watch it with intention. You're trying to to watch it from a place of like, how do I consume this? Not just as someone who enjoys TV, but also as someone who really cares about issues and cares about you know living the the best possible and intentional life that I can. Do you have any advice for people to uh, of how they might be able to to engage a little bit more thoughtfully with TV shows? Is it tweeting? Could be tweeting. <laughs> like, as all of us are consuming content, you know, there's so much out there. This is so self-serving, so I'll say it since I'm do literally it. wearing a T-shirt for my own show. This is, what, this, is what I'm, this is what I do now. I just wear, I'm a billboard for my own show until uh, we come back, and then, you know. Um, hashtag. <laughs> hashtag save Odette. That's right. Um, you know, Norman Lear and Rita Moreno wrote an article for The Hollywood Reporter, uh, again, about one day at a time. And it, it's just, it, it's, it's a, such a sad, weird truth, but it's like, there's so many shows. So if there's a show that does some representation that you find valuable, you have to support it. And I, I'm trying, this is not to shame people into watching my show, <laughs> but like... I mean, it's, it's whatever support you can give it. It, it. We're in the binge era, which means that your mentality is, I don't have time to watch that, so I'll watch that later. But unfortunately, later might never come if you don't watch it right away. So I don't even know exactly what I'm saying. I guess it's like if you feel like there's a show that's a little bit valuable, that's also a little bit of a, a baby deer that needs... You know, watch that one first and keep the safe ones. I mean, I'm not, listen, watch Grey's Anatomy too. That's going to be on forever. I'm not trying to say don't watch that. What I'm trying to really say is watch more television. <laughs> That's going to solve all this. Or watch protagonists who don't look like you, right? So, so maybe sure. the answer is to look for content that isn't representative of your own experience, right? Mm -hmm. how, do, how do we expand our... our... Um, so what I might do is open it up for questions... Brilliant, okay. So we have a young woman at the front. Hi, my name is Joris, and I'm originally from the Congo, Africa. And I would like to ask you, um, first of all, thank you for doing shows talking about asylum. I would like to ask you if anybody has in the past or, or if you think also, not only talk about asylum, but also talk about the source of asylum. Um, excuse me, I'm a French speaker, so my English would be, <laughs> sorry, I do my best. So can you extend the shows and talk about the source, the cause of asylum? Because I noticed that population in the powerful countries like America and Europe, 
the population, most of them, they don't know why people come. They always treat them like, why are you here? Why are you taking our jobs? Why are you this? But they don't know why people come here. And that's a big thing now, mostly, I speak about Africa because that's where I'm from. It could be different reasons. Um, there are political reasons, like for the communism, but that's kind of past. But now the big reason could be economic reasons. Because powerful countries, since they discovered things, resources in Africa, minerals and stuff, they, I'm not naming anybody, but they go and they, there is corruption to the leaders of Africa. They corrupt them and they make them so powerful that nobody can say anything there. You, make, you try to say something, they kill you and it's, they really care. They kill you, so that's why people run away and they go either in Europe or they come to America. So my question is, I think I am, or a suggestion to also talk about the source, why people come here. Why do they run away and come file for asylum here? So if you didn't do it yet, so um, I'm asking, is that because you didn't think about it or because you cannot talk about that for political reasons, because you could be in trouble with the government here, or uh, because it's not time yet to talk about the source of asylum? Thank you. Wow. <laughs> you should be very proud. I, I, oh, geez. I, no, no. No, no. <laughs> this time you start. This time you start, Rafael. Oh, come on. Wow. Quite Go a ahead. beef. Quite Go a ahead. beef you got going. Go ahead. So I'm, I'm going to first of all say that, I mean, and, and, I'm, and I'm, then I'm looking to one of you guys, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are incredible and powerful international television shows that are being made right now that are from those communities, right? And I, and I think that when we're talking about the panel today, we're certainly talking about American-made TV shows. But, the, but I, I feel as if the authenticity is often found in the root of those international shows. And one of the things that I would love to see more of is how do we elevate those shows? Like, you know, it, it's one thing to take the British office to the United States, right? Like, that's a very easy, like, come, come hither, we know you. But it would be really much more interesting. Like, there are TV shows right now about environmental activists in Brazil where it's a total soap opera and like people are sleeping with each other and then like standing in front of bulldozers. How do we take the concepts of these shows and bring them to the United States for that added authenticity, right? I'm also curious. Um, uh, I always say that a, that a story wants to express itself a certain way. Sometimes a story wants to be a poem. Sometimes a story wants to be a film or a novel. We work in episodic television for, for a reason. Um, the, to address it exactly how you said is something I've been trying to do for a very long time, and I'm currently working on a docu-series with the United Nations exactly about this, because I hope to be telling this story exactly, addressing the root of the problem and telling a global immigrant story um, to try to fight the global narrative of the rise of like nativism and populism, like the same thing with Trump, the same thing with Brexit, it's happening all over the world, um, and immigrants are the scapegoats. And I think it's important to, to say in a panel like this that we all understand that seeking asylum there's nothing illegal about seeking asylum, no matter what people are trying to convince us of. So I don't think anyone is breaking the law. Go on. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I hope we're very close that in this climate where there's so many television shows, one, one door that hasn't quite been broken down, with the exception maybe of Narcos, is an internationally set show and uh, there's language barriers you know, sometimes that, you know, you, I'm not sure you want to set a, a show in a foreign country and have everyone speaking in, you know, in English, with, unless it's an English-speaking country. Uh, so there's been challenges that, you know, the people who make decisions about what to program uh, like to put up barriers. Like, well, you can't do that. You know, do we really want to watch a show where everyone's speaking in French? You know, that, that question comes up, but I think you know, that's getting whittled away less and less and less. About half of my show is in Japanese, <laughs> and another third, maybe not a third, and another fraction of it is in Spanish. So, so it's, and my network hasn't blinked yet. You know, they, they, they've been okay with that. Uh, you're going to be watching a lot of people speaking Japanese and then, uh, you know, some people speaking Spanish with subtitles, and it's been okay. They have not balked, and I don't think our viewership will balk, and I think that 
hopefully, you know, sooner rather than later, we'll see more international shows. Because that's been a, that's been a door that's kind of been hard to break down. But now is, I think, a good time. Any other questions? Yes. Over there. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming um, and sharing all this great wisdom. Um, part of the thing with uh, people with developmental disabilities is um, my family has like a long like history with them since like we've been here and I've worked with that, so I have that background. And oftentimes when we go out to like supermarkets and things like that, and we're going shopping, I see the way that other people who don't have that background at all look at them and be like, why are they here? Like, this is making me feel uncomfortable, you know? So when shows like that are trying to represent it, whether that be like in a comedy, whether that be in like a drama about like the institutions that they were like forced to be in until like the 60s, 70s still, like how, how do you get a network that is putting like their business and money on the line and be like, this is an important show to watch right now? You know, because I feel that, like, with Handmaid's Tale, especially with everything that's happening now, it says, like, it's like this is the perfect time for this to be on right now. However, I don't feel that I have seen any type of needle moving towards people with developmental disability in terms of, like, the general public's comfortability about it. So I, I'm not even sure if there's, like, a really question in there, but I just, like, would love to know, like, what your response to that statement would be. Thank you. I mean... Honestly, it's starting, I think, when you're talking about any group, any individual, any group of people in your writer's room, if you're creating content, then you need to be able to create content for people who have lived that experience and then can push it forward. And then people need to be able to have the space to tell their story. There doesn't necessarily need to be an entire show whose focus is on it, but... I brought up in the writer's room that, they, that the way that they portray cancer on television is uh, either cured or dead and that there's no living in between and there's a giant community of people of which I am a part that are walking around living with cancer and the response from Chris Darja Runner was okay so let's go put it on TV and let's show that um, and let that be something that one of our doctors experiences and we try to save her and we can't fix her completely. And she's walking around now in our universe having a job and being a surgeon and being brilliant and fabulous and fantastic and is walking around in the world that way. It's not the entire focus of the show, but it's another way to move that, to move the needle in another, like just a little bit more. But it starts with someone saying, hey, you've lived this experience, why don't you contribute it and then put it there, saying, look, writing into existence. I don't know what the fear, you know, I, I don't know what the fear is, but I just know that it doesn't really start to change unless people are willing to say, raise their hand and say, these are stories that aren't being told right now, let's go do it. Other questions? Yes. Austin's so smart. Like these, 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 right? these questions, I'm like, yes. Yeah. Uh, building on what he was saying, I think one network that is um, really taking uh, a chance with disabilities is the A&E network, um, with two shows, Born This Way and The Employables, um, and also Netflix with um, special um, Ryan O'Connell, uh, his... Um, uh, I think it was a six-part show, which is a dramatization of his life. He not only has a disability, he's also gay. And um, so I'm, as a person with a disability, I'm thrilled to see uh, shows like this on television. Now, Born This Way and The Employables are reality TV. Um, so that is a little bit different, that it's not, um, you know, fictionalized. But... Uh, and, and we mentioned Speechless, too, which was a great show and unfortunately got canceled. Um, but it was very groundbreaking, too. So I'm thrilled to see things like that on television. And thank you so, for sharing that as well, because I'm really interested in the, in the panel's thoughts on intersectionality, right? Because you, you brought up Special, which is about someone who has a di disability. He's also gay. And, and I think 
the best part is that neither of those are particularly interesting parts of his character, right? He's also funny and self-deprecating and, you know, witty and a writer and, like, all these other things. And so I wonder, you know, for, for you all, when it comes to intersectional characters, are there ones that you think are particularly doing it well? Or are there challenges to writing an intersectional character or promoting an intersectional character who might have more than one identity at the same time? Well, I think we're all intersectional characters. I mean, yeah. that's, that's like, I mean, let's be real. Like, that's the best storytelling because the problem that we have with Amnesty International, as you've seen with refugee representation on TV, is you're either the criminal or you're the victim. And both of those are problematic. So it's, it's in the middle. It's like what you were saying about Grace. It's either you survive it or you die. But we all live in the middle. Question? Yes. Oh, someone else has worth it while I'm thinking of it, of the right answer. Or, or do you do that? Well, well, you do, you do, but it's it's one of those things like uh, it, like asking a uh, um, a baseball pitcher, like you know, how do you throw a 95 mile an hour fastball? It becomes part of your. We've been doing it long enough. You know, it, it becomes sort of second nature. Like I, I'm living in the skin of the character, and I'm writing these words. How I do it? If I had to stop and think, I'm not sure. And if I had to really take it apart, it might not be so pretty. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it, eventually, you know, those muscles start moving, and you know, you're you're in the. You know, you're, you're in the eyes of those characters, and you're seeing it uh, through their point of view, and uh, hopefully, it comes out uh, um, uh, coherently and compassionately. But I, I, I don't know if I have a real answer. Like this is the way you do it because you've just been doing it. Yeah, if you think about it, then you can't do it. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm, I'm I'm locked up. I can't do it. <laughs> Any other questions? Brilliant. Well, I just wanted to thank all of you for being such a, a powerful content creators. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you all for coming out. The TV Campfire is produced by Caitlin McFarland, Emily Gibson, and AJ Myers, along with our audio partner, Five Ohm Productions. Mark your calendars. ATX TV Festival Season 9 is happening June 4th through 7th, 2020 in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit atxfestival.com and follow us on social media at ATX Festival. And be sure to check out our episode notes for a very special discount on badges exclusive to TV Campfire podcast listeners. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. And stay tuned for even more exclusive releases each week.